Amen. Well, let us uh, take out God's word and let's turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and Jesus and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for gathering us together as your people. We thank you for the privilege of having access to your holy scriptures. Lord, we recognize that blessing as we acknowledge that it has not been the case for all of your people across all of time. And so we are so grateful that we have access to your word. Lord, we pray now that as your word goes forth, that you would use it to accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, as your word is preached, I pray that it would fall upon soft hearts and ears that are ready to hear and receive Lord, may it be your truth that is said and nothing else. Lord, get me out of the way. May you be glorified here. Uh, May your people be built up. And may those who don't know you be convicted and brought to faith in Christ. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up our series here in John chapter 12. Uh, Due to a mistake in what I left on my sermon title, uh, we are not going all the way to verse 26. We will be just sticking with a triumphal entry this morning, verses 12 to 19. Um, We pick up where we left off. Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, uh, which, as we saw, was the event that then triggered the decision of the chief priests and the Pharisees to actively seek to put Jesus to death. Word had then gone out that if anyone knew where Christ was, they were to report it so that he could be arrested. 
Now there is buzz and anticipation among the people who are going up to Jerusalem for the Passover, wondering now, since Jesus is a wanted man, is he going to make an appearance? Right? Is he going to come to the feast at all? Uh, and so Jesus had come to Bethany then, a village very near to Jerusalem, uh, where he was then anointed by Mary. And Jesus now is ready to make his way into Jerusalem, knowing full well what is awaiting him there. So let's read John 12, 12 to 16, John's account of the triumphal entry. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So John starts us off with a transition here, saying the next day. So this is the, likely the next day after Jesus had been at dinner in Bethany. Uh, presumably now we are on the Sunday of his Passion Week. Right, so this is now entering into the very last week before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Right, we're coming up to the end of the narrative, but as you may notice, we are only in chapter 12. Uh, there is a lot of John left to go, uh, and uh, we actually have some of the richest and most beautiful and encouraging sections in all of Scripture as we look at the Upper Room Discourse as Jesus uh, spent those, uh, those evenings with his disciples uh, before his crucifixion. So this day, being Sunday uh, of the triumphal entry, is now one week away from the most significant day in history. Right? And we begin to see why Christians have historically placed such significance upon the first day of the week. So notice here, it is on a Sunday that Jesus comes to Jerusalem very deliberately and is hailed as Messiah by the people. Of course, we know it will then be on a Sunday that Jesus will rise from the dead, victorious and conquering king. It will then be on consecutive Sundays that Jesus will appear to his disciples after his resurrection. It is on a Sunday that Jesus pledges to his disciples that they will receive the Holy Spirit. And it was then on a Sunday that they received that promise, that the Holy Spirit came down upon them at Pentecost and 3,000 souls were added to their number. And so not surprisingly, it is then on a Sunday, on Sundays, that the early church gathered for fellowship and for the Lord's Supper. And it is then Sunday that the Apostle John refers to in Scripture as the Lord's Day. And so here it is that we gather as Christ's people on this Lord's Day, this Sunday, to commemorate and celebrate the resurrection of our Lord, even as we look forward to our own. So back now, though, to the Sunday before Christ's resurrection, and we see him entering Jerusalem and the large crowd of people who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover hail him as Messiah. The text says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. 
Right, so John tells us this is a large crowd. Now, just to get a sense of how many people would have been in Jerusalem for the Passover, uh, the, the early uh, historian Josephus estimates that on one Passover shortly after the time of Christ, the number of participants in Passover in Jerusalem was around 2.7 million. Right, so even if these numbers are a little bit inflated, uh, the crowds that would be coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast were immense. Right? All of the Jewish males were required to come to Jerusalem for the celebration. So you would have people streaming into Jerusalem uh, from every direction. And you remember as well that this was the reason why there had been so many people out in the countryside, uh, in the Galilean countryside, to hear Jesus on the occasion that he preached and then fed the 5,000, right? You don't typically just find 5,000 people out in the wilderness <laughs> to start preaching to you, right? These are pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, right? So we see here, there are large crowds, large crowds. And John says they then went out to meet him. So those pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the feast hear that Jesus is coming, now making the trip from Bethany to Jerusalem. And so it says the people went out to meet him. So the picture we have is people likely lining the road on both sides as Jesus travels from Bethany to Jerusalem. And they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, uh, we commonly call this Palm Sunday, uh, the, the week before Easter, the commemoration of this event, um, but that raises a question which you may have been wondering, and that is, why palm branches? Right, what's the significance here of palm branches? And on this, Dia Carson gives us some of the background. He writes that from about two centuries earlier, palm branches had already become a national symbol. When Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of the Jerusalem citadel, he was feted with music and the waving of palm branches, which had also been prominent at the rededication of the temple. Right, so you see these, these events, these deliverances, uh, both when the temple was uh, rededicated, when they had had a great victory and were able to reclaim the temple and rededicate it. He says uh, palm branches had been used in celebration of that event, as well as here for Simon the Maccabee uh, after his great victory. Carson notes as well that palms were used as a symbol, even being stamped on coins during the Jewish wars against Rome. Right, so it was therefore a well-established symbol for Judea. Right, this was a symbol for the people. Um, and Carson concludes, in this instance, it may well have signaled nationalist hope that a messianic liberator was arriving on the scene, close quote. Now remember again that Passover is a celebration of the time that God freed his people from the oppression of their slavery in Egypt and established them as a nation. Right? This celebration that they're coming to Jerusalem for was literally a celebration of a time when they were delivered from oppression, right? when they were liberated from their overlords. And so it's not surprising then that Passover was an event that stirred up nationalistic zeal and patriotism. Right, you can picture it'd be like the Americans celebrating Independence Day while under, you know, occupation from China. 
right? You're, you're celebrating, hey, remember that time when we were free? Remember when God delivered us from that oppressive nation that was over us? Uh, remember that great freedom. And so it's not surprising that as they celebrated Passover every year, this would stir up that nationalistic zeal and patriotism. And so these words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, to get the background on this, uh, we need to know that this is a quotation from Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. Um, and so that cry, Hosanna, actually comes from verse 25, uh, which means give salvation now. Right, Hosanna, give salvation now. In the ESV, uh, Psalm 118, verse 25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us, salvation. Right, Give salvation now. Hosanna. Um, and whether or not this was originally meant as a messianic blessing, this is quite clearly what the crowd meant by this, as is shown by the second half of their proclamation. So they quote from Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then this line, which is not a quotation from that psalm, even the king of Israel. So if we could summarize this scene, what we have in the triumphal entrance here is a multitude, a large group of pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for the Passover, a celebration which consistently stirred up patriotism. And then the people received Jesus with palm branches, right, a symbol that had been used to honor the great deliverers from oppression, such as Simon Maccabee, following a great victory or the rededication of the temple. They received Jesus quoting Psalm 118, which is a psalm about the goodness of the Lord in delivering Israel from her enemies. And then they even declare him to be the king of Israel. Right, so by all indications, it seems that the Jews were expecting Jesus to come as their deliverer, their political deliverer. Someone who would free them from their occupation under Rome. Someone who would rally the people. Jesus could certainly do that. Jesus could draw a crowd. Perhaps use his power to heal their troops, to even raise them from the dead if need be. Someone who could multiply food to feed the armies. Right now, with a king like Jesus, with a king who can do the kinds of things that the people have seen and heard Jesus do, victory and deliverance would really look to be within reach. But as we know, that was not what Jesus came to do. The fact is, Jesus came to be so much more. There is a very good reason why the name of Jesus is better known than the name of Simon Maccabee, or even Judas Maccabee. For Jesus came to be so much more than merely a political deliverer or a military hero. And we actually see this in the next verse as Jesus begins to subvert some of their expectations. Verse 14 says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now this quotation is likely a combination of multiple Old Testament passages. And that's a fairly common way that the New Testament authors would quote from Scripture. 
I think of Romans 3 where Paul just grabs like every negative quotation about the uh, nature of man and he mashes them all together in Romans 3 <laughs> to show we are all under sin. Um, so most of this one here is drawn from Zechariah 9, uh, but as Carson writes, the, the opening words are not, right? Those opening words, do not be afraid, are found neither in the Hebrew nor any other version of Zechariah 9, and they replace the words rejoice greatly, which we'll see in a moment. So quite likely, these are drawn from Isaiah 40, verse 9, uh, where they are addressed to the one who brings good tidings to Zion. Now, for us to get the full force of these quotations um, and, and what this would have actually meant, what Jesus was trying to communicate in this, Carson argues that the broader Old Testament context needs to be considered. So, what is this good news to Zion? Right? To what was Jesus directing the people as they would see him now riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. We'll read from, from verse 9. <clears throat> it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. So this prophecy of the king coming, riding on a donkey, is one that Jesus deliberately and self-consciously fulfilled. In the other gospel accounts, we actually see Jesus sent his disciples to go and to find uh, the foal of a donkey uh, with this prophecy in mind. And so you see, this would actually be quite the statement from Christ in the face of the reception that he's having into Jerusalem, right? These people are hailing him now as Messiah, as the new king of Israel. Undoubtedly, the hope in the minds of many, if not most, is that he will be the next Judas Maccabeus, the, uh, the next Judas the Hammer, right? The one who will smash the Romans in battle. Only his victory then will be complete and lasting, and so what kind of entrance would you expect from that kind of a Messiah, right? You hail him as your new national hero with the palm branches. You're celebrating him, Hosanna, right? You're expecting him coming in high and exalted, right? Sword strapped to his thigh, perhaps riding a great war horse. What does Jesus do? Jesus arranges to ride on a donkey. Not just a donkey, a little donkey, a young donkey. Perhaps the most honored donkey in history, but still no war horse. Right? And in doing this, Jesus would be drawing attention to this text in Zechariah. Right? You can imagine anybody who knew the scriptures well, right? you yourself have been steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, right? you've gone to synagogue, you've heard it preached and teached, uh, preached and taught. Um, and what, what would you think as you see this man now, uh, saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem, being hailed as king, 
riding on a donkey. Right? You've got all those ingredients, king, Jerusalem, young donkey. Well, that sounds familiar. Was that in Zechariah? What did that passage say again? Right? It would point you to the text. You'd be driven there by this action. And what would you find when you arrived? Not a promise of military conquest. Not a promise of military conquest. A different kind of conquering. You would find a humble and gentle king riding on a donkey. After which God promises, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, Carson's comments on this section are worth quoting in full. He writes, three points stand out. Number one, the coming of this gentle king is associated with the cessation of war. And this too was understood by John as the defining work of Jesus in such a way that Jesus could never be reduced to an enthusiastic zealot. Number two, the coming of the gentle king is associated with the proclamation of peace to the nations, extending his reign to the ends of the earth. The latter half of Zechariah 9 verse 10 is itself a quotation from Psalm 72 verse 8. And I pause here to note that that is the very verse that is referenced on our Canadian coat of arms. Right? And that is, uh, may he, and it is actually the reason we are called the dominion of Canada. Right? That verse, may he, Christ, have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Um, yeah, Carson goes on, the latter half of Zechariah 9.10 is a quotation from Psalm 72 which promises a worldwide reign for Zion's king, a son of David. And number three, the coming of the gentle king is associated with the blood of God's covenant that spells release for prisoners. Themes already precious in John and associated with Passover and with the death of the servant king that lies immediately ahead. Jesus absolutely is the Messiah. He is the prophesied son of David who was to receive an everlasting dominion. He absolutely is the king, not just the king of Israel, but the king of kings. And he did come to bring salvation, deliverance, and peace. And all of this was the reason that he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. But as this text, which Christ deliberately fulfilled, would demonstrate, Jesus came to do all of these things in a very different way than many, if not all, the people were expecting. And I say many, if not all, for as we see in the next verse, Jesus' own disciples did not understand what this was all about. Read with me John 12, verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him 
and had been done to him. Now we see consistently throughout the Gospels that a suffering Messiah was not what anyone expected or seems to have wanted. Jesus told his disciples again and again and again what, exactly what was going to happen to him, exactly what awaited him. And yet we see repeatedly, Luke 18, 34, but they, the disciples, understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. It was therefore only Christ's glorification in John that refers to his death and resurrection, which finally removed the veil. What had been revealed in the Old Testament through types and shadows and through prophecies, some of which the prophets themselves did not understand, this was finally unveiled in the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glory. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So here John gives us the main reason for this grand reception. Have you ever wondered why the triumphal entry? What was it that got all these people so fired up to receive Jesus in this way? John says the reason was is that the, uh, it was because of the testimony of those who had witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus. Again, this had been a public miracle with many eyewitnesses. Right? They had gone with Mary to Jesus and then with them to the tomb. Right? Many people saw this happen. And so those people did exactly what you'd expect. <laughs> they did exactly what you'd do. They told everybody that they saw Jesus raise a man from the dead. <laughs> right? They told everybody. Um, and John says this then was the reason why the crowd went to meet him. Those who knew the resurrection power of Christ did not keep it to themselves. We saw that Lazarus himself became a target because on account of him, many people were going and believing in Jesus, John 12, 11. Lazarus's very life, his very existence, walking around Bethany, living his life, was a powerful testimony to the resurrection power of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, may this be true of us as well. We who have been raised to spiritual life ought to put that on display. We must live differently. Not as those who are still dead in transgression and sin. Not as those who are still in slavery to sin. But as those who are alive. Dead to sin alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we must also testify with our mouths, as this crowd did, that Jesus raises the dead, that in Jesus there is forgiveness of sins and eternal life. I know it can be easy to lose sight of, but the fact truly is that what Christ has done in forgiving you, what Christ has done in granting you uh, this inheritance, in granting you eternal life, in raising you to spiritual life, that is a greater miracle than even the resurrection of Lazarus. Right? It required more from Christ. 
So let this text then present us with a lesser to the greater argument, right? So we see if this crowd, many of whom did not have genuine faith in Christ, we see that in John 12, 37, if this crowd boldly testified to the comparatively lesser miracle of a physical resurrection to mortal life, then how much more should we, the spirit-indwelt, blood-bought brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, testify to all he has done for us? Right? We, like Lazarus, should have our very lives be a testimony to the resurrection power of Christ. We, like this crowd, should boldly go and tell everybody of what Christ has done, whoever is willing to listen. Right? If even they were so bold, how much more should we be bold? Let's continue on, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Right, Pharisees, the, the Pharisees see this massive crowd receiving Jesus as the Christ, hailing him as the king of Israel, and it looks to them as if all of their fears have now been confirmed. Right, everything they're afraid of is coming to pass before their eyes. Remember back in chapter 11, we saw their fear was that if Christ continued on as he was, soon everyone would follow him. Right? Everyone would follow him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And we saw last week that part of the concern may have been that if Jesus was declared to be king, that it may be received as a threat to Caesar's authority, one that would then be met with a military response. And so here now, Jesus is being hailed as king. Right, the people are waving palm branches as they did for Simon Maccabee over a century earlier. This situation looks explosive. Right, Jesus has this following. The people are expecting him to be a deliverer. He could start a revolt right now if he wanted to. And so the Pharisees look at this and it feels to them like all of their fears are coming to pass. And so they feel they must act now. They need to act and act quickly. And although we still have a lot of the Gospel of John left to cover, uh, as we'll work through the glories of this last week, uh, let us keep in mind that it would only be another few days from this point uh, before Jesus would be arrested and brought on trial. Uh, and that reference to his trial brings us back to the misunderstanding of the nature of Christ as king and his kingdom. Uh, so we saw the crowd hailing Christ as Messiah, uh, calling him the king, very likely expecting him to be this political deliverer. And that ended up being significant as a part of why he was brought before uh, Pilate, why he was brought before the authorities. So turn with me to John 18, and we'll read verses 33 to 36 of Jesus' trial before Pilate. <clears throat> so Pilate entered his headquarters again, and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? 
Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. And catch this. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. So we see again, Jesus did not come to be a political or military hero. He is the king. But as we saw, this king came riding, not on a war horse, but humble and mounted on a donkey. The enemy which he came to destroy could not be conquered with sword, bow, or chariot. The enemy kingdom that he came to destroy cannot be touched by arrows or punctured by spears or torn down by siege works. And so Christ came to conquer by a very different means than anyone appears to have expected. And that is this. Christ came to conquer through death and resurrection. For the real enemies, the greater, more oppressive, more destructive enemies that needed fighting were sin, death, and Satan. These are the greater enemies. For whatever the political landscape may be, whichever earthly tyrants may be ruling at any given time, these enemies are worse. Their oppression is greater. The effects of their tyranny will last longer. Mankind, since the fall, has been born into sin. We are born in slavery to sin. We are kept under the power and the penalty of sin. For we are, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2, verse 3. We are therefore naturally under the tyranny of Satan. We are subject to the curse of death and afterwards the penalty of eternal death. This was a condition that we could do nothing to free ourselves from. Fallen as we were, none of us can undo the fall of man into sin. We cannot free ourselves from the guilt of original sin, nor the guilt of our own actual sins. We had no sacrifice which we ourselves could offer to ransom our own souls to God. And no amount of good works would avail. But Jesus Christ, our conquering king, rode into Jerusalem as our champion. He came to face down his and our enemies. For when Christ died on the cross, God transferred the guilt of our sin onto his son. Romans 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Right? In sending his own son, God condemned sin in the flesh. Question. Christ did not have any sin. So whose sin then was condemned in his flesh? 
ours, sins of his people. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is what we mean when we say that Christ died for our sins. And that is, the penalty due was paid in full. And so Satan has been disarmed. His weapon was accusation. He's called the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12, verse 10. And his weapon was powerful, for his accusations used to be true. Right? But not anymore. Though he would point, though he would accuse God's children, saying, guilty, guilty, we may now respond and say, yes, but for those who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. For Christ has borne my condemnation on my behalf. He has taken it all upon himself. And so Satan is disarmed. Satan is defeated. He no longer has a hold over Christ's people. He is a vanquished foe. Christ has purchased a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. Revelation 7, 9. Right? Satan's hold on them is gone. We see that the nations are Christ's inheritance. Psalm 2, verse 8. They have been bought with the blood of Christ, and Christ will receive the reward for his sufferings. So truly we see Christ is king. Truly we see Christ did come to conquer But as he explained to Pilate, his kingdom is not of this world. The enemy he came to destroy was not the Romans, but something so much greater. He came to defeat sin, death, and Satan. He rose from the death, and his resurrection is now the harbinger of ours. He is the first fruits from the dead. Death no longer has a hold on his people. Sin no longer has a hold on his people. They are given the spirit and released from its power. Through his suffering, through his atonement, they are released from its penalty. So sin, death, and Satan are defeated. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. But unfortunately, many people misapply this as if to say that Christ's kingdom, therefore, will have no impact upon this world. Right? As if the only thing that his kingdom did was to get souls off of this earth and into heaven. But that is neither what he said nor what he meant. Notice that Jesus explains what he meant. Verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. How do worldly kingdoms advance? Well, they advance through the power of the sword. They grow through their military might. They expand and take their territory through violence or threat of violence. That is how Caesar claimed his authority. That is how Caesar claimed his territory. That is how his kingdom grew. Now, we saw that if Jesus had wanted to, he could have pretty easily started an armed revolt. Those crowds that hailed him as king were pretty ready to be whipped into a frenzy. 
Jesus, had he wanted to, could have surrounded himself with armed guards, zealots, who would have fought against anyone who came to arrest him. But he didn't. The one servant, Peter, who did seek to fight, who drew a sword in his defense, was rebuked and told to put his sword away. Jesus then even healed the man Peter struck. Luke twenty-two fifty-one. Christ's kingdom will not advance that way. His kingdom is not from the world. His authority is not simply the threat of violence. Christ, rather, is the rightful king. Remember John's prologue. Jesus himself is the one through whom and for whom all things were made. Jesus is then the one who bought the nations with his blood, who came to redeem his fallen creation and to receive it back as his inheritance. Christ then sends out his people saying, in essence, go and bring me my inheritance. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. This is how Christ's kingdom spreads. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing dead men and women to spiritual life through the proclamation of the gospel. It spreads through ordinary Christians living faithful lives, and as they are going, being faithful to make disciples, right? witnessing like Lazarus to all that Christ has done for them. Christ's kingdom spreads through ordinary Christians being fruitful and multiplying, and then discipling their children like crazy, bringing them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. And though Christ's kingdom is not of this world, that does not mean it has no impact upon this world. For when sinners are ransomed from their futile ways of life, when they are delivered from the power and penalty of sin, transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son, they become different people. How could they not impact the world? They become different sorts of husbands, the sort that love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. They become different sorts of fathers. They become fathers who bring up their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. They become the kinds of sons who would honor their fathers and their mothers. They become employees who will work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. They become employers who will create wealth, treat their employees fairly, help others feed their families, and provide something useful to the world. They become the kinds of neighbors whom you would trust to check on your place while you're gone. They become the kinds of citizens who love their enemies, who will turn the other cheek when slapped, who will pray for those who persecute them, who will bless and not revile. They become the kinds of citizens concerned for the poor and downtrodden, who care, as Jesus taught, for the least of these. They become citizens who care for true biblical justice in society, 
and would support and promote righteous laws that will bless all who are under them. Christ's kingdom is not of this world, but wherever it takes root and manifests itself, it blesses this world. Christ is king, and he is king of all, and there is therefore no part of our lives that are unaffected by his lordship. And when kingdom citizens order their lives in every way unto the glory and honor of Christ, they become a blessing to all around them. Let us who receive Christ, who would shout Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let us who would hail him as king of kings live now and always to the glory of our Savior. Amen.